If we were to put the theme of the sermon today into one word, that word would be confession. The question is, why do we confess in worship? Now, typically speaking, when we hear the word confess uh, and when we use it, we use it and we think of it as admitting wrongdoing. So that's the way it would be used in a court, or that's the way we would use it uh, casually. I confess that I did something. And that's a completely legitimate biblical use of that word, and that's why I had us for the promise of forgiveness today in our service use that portion of Scripture, very familiar to us, and I know all of these passages, or many of them at least, are familiar to us, from 1 John, in which it says, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an appropriate and good and normal usage of the word confess, both for us casually in our use today and also biblically speaking, it is appropriate as well. But that said, there is a broader usage of the term confess, and it is seen in the two passages that I just read for us. As you come to the end of the Philippians 2 passage, it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or if you look at the uh, Romans 10 passage, you have that same type of usage for the word confess. Excuse me, I'm going to give you just a, a little bit of Greek, and the only reason I'm going to give you the Greek is because you're going to recognize the terms. This word, whether it's used in the first John sense of confessing, admitting a wrongdoing, or whether it's used in the two passages that I just quoted for us, is the word homologia. Homologia. Homo, the same, logia, words. Okay? It's a very simple word. And it's the same thing in English if you trace the roots of confess. It is essentially to say the same thing, to agree with one another or with something, something. And the most simple, the most profound Christian confession of faith is found in the verse that we've quoted, Philippians 2, verse 11. This is the confession. Jesus is Lord. At its beginning, that was the simplest thing that the church said about Christ and about this faith. But confession has Old Testament roots to it as well. It is not just a New Testament invention that they did. So I printed for you on the front of uh, the bulletins today just the, the opening uh, verse, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And from ancient days to now, that is the confession that Jews, Hebrews use in the context of worship to declare their faith in God. Remember, uh, remember when we were in the book of Exodus, I guess it was a, a year or so ago, and we looked at the people covenanting with God in Exodus 24, and they make the statement, having heard the words of the covenant, they say with one voice, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They say those words together. Actually, they say them a couple of times together. And then Moses, and this is going to seem like a small thing, but you'll see how this builds. Moses instructs them at another point to all say amen in unison with one another. 
as a proper response to that which they have heard. The Psalms, the, the Psalter as a whole, is a grand example of corporate confession. I'm just going to say this one more time so I don't have to keep saying it. When I'm saying confess, I'm not just talking about admitting wrongdoing. I'm saying, saying the same, same things together. The Psalms are a grand expression of corporate confession. They are written so that the people can say them, sing them, respond uh, as those things go through, so that they can say the same things at the same time, generation after generation. That's why they're written down for us as something to say. And in fact, that's the reason that I had this passage uh, open us in worship this morning. So in worship this morning, we went through this passage, let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say it, same thing. Let all those who fear the Lord say it. There is something about the character of worship which makes it good to say the same thing together. Not redundant, good. The Old Testament is full of confession. The New Testament is full of confession in the context of worship, and I'm not even going to bother turning us to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is similarly full of it, where God's people gathered together with God's creatures, the seraphim and the cherubim, the angels that he have made, are constantly saying things or singing them, saying or saying, singing things at the same time with one voice. Many voices turn into one voice. That's not normal life. Tommy noted last week that uh, life is not a musical, that we don't actually go around singing to one another, whatever it is we want to communicate. Saying things at the same time is not normal. You aren't in conversation and you're sitting around and you say something and then all of a sudden everybody says exactly the same thing in response to what you said. This is something special that is done. And, and I said this already, but it can feel a little bit unusual, perhaps not for us because we do it all the time. But if you're coming in here and you're a visitor and you're not familiar with the life of the church, maybe you kind of look at this and go, why are these people doing this? Isn't it, isn't it a little bit childlike to, okay, everybody now at the same time say, and then whatever it is we're going to say, be it a prayer uh, or be it a, a, a confession of faith. It's a little bit odd. But clearly, when we look at Scripture, what comes out of our mouth, and especially what comes out of our mouth in the, in the context of corporate worship, matters. It makes a difference. So we are a church that confesses, that is obvious by what we do. Nevertheless, the question remains, great, why? I, I get that it's written in the Bible, but even why is it written in the Bible? What, what is happening when we do this together? We pray the Lord's Prayer, or confess the faith, or we say amen all at the same time. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give us four answers to that question this morning. Why do we spend that time doing this in worship? I'll begin with the most obvious this morning. The most obvious reason that we do this is unity. When we with one voice, 
agree and say something together. We are experiencing, celebrating, and building unity or oneness. It is happening as we do it. We're, we're enjoying it together. We're celebrating the fact that we are one in Christ. And then by the very act of saying it together, we are building unity amongst this body that God has gathered together. So Philippians 2. The beginning part of Philippians 2 obviously deals with some type of discord that was going on in the church at Philippi. At various points, ours no exception, churches can experience either harmony or discord or some semblance thereof, somewhere on the scale of those two things. Clearly, Philippi was a great church, but they had some dissonance going on within the congregation. And Paul is writing to them and imploring them to have amongst themselves the same mind, the same love with one another in full accord and of one mind. He wants them to practice a unity, but the unity that he wants them to practice is founded not merely on just hugging one another, but also of having the same mind. And the mind that he wants them to have is the mind of Christ. I want you to think like Jesus. I want you in your union with Christ to have the mind of Christ amongst you. It is then within that desire to stop some fighting, maybe some disputing, some just disagreement that was going on in the church of Philippi, that he breaks into the great hymnic confession that concludes Philippians chapter 2, that, the, the portion that we just read. All scholars, when they look at that, when you look at it in uh, the original, recognize that what Paul has done is in his effort to encourage them to be united, to be of one accord with one another, he's taken a hymn-like confession and he's put it right at that point. Why? Because he draws them to that upon which they agree. And namely, he draws them to Christ himself, who is the source of their oneness, the source of their unity. And, and what he's doing is he's taking that and saying, this is what you confess. I want you to be practically united. I want you to love one another. And in order to do that, confess together that which we've sung together, that which we've confessed together, namely that Jesus Christ is Lord and the rest of the words that are found in those verses from uh, 8 along to uh, verse 11. That's what Paul is trying to do in that particular section. We're trying to say the same thing as one another. That's the source of the hymn that is right here. And when we do that, when we say the same thing as one another, we are putting into practice in a very small way that which Paul has commanded them to do in all of life. What Paul wants them to do is to be subject to one another, to count others as more important than themselves. So we sit together and we say something at the same time. When we do that, we are suppressing our individuality. 
We're suppressing our creativity. We're suppressing the creativity of our minds and of our voices in order to say something at the same time. That's what happens when we worship, when we say it at the same time. We're all subject to something, and it affects and creates present unity, but it does something else. And I, I would like to say it's more important than present unity, but it's at least as important as present unity because not only are we subjecting ourselves to one another within this room when we, for example, say a creed, but we are doing more than that. We are subjecting ourselves to the past. We are subjecting ourselves to those who have come before us. When we recite these things together, when we start off with the doxology, when we say the Lord's Prayer or any of the other things that we say together, we are being unshackled from the tyrannical rule of the present, and we are being liberated and receiving a timeless treasure from our fathers. We're united with the church that has come before us. And as soon as we join our voices together in saying those things, it is right at that moment where we become a living link in the chain of faith. We have our oneness in the faith, our oneness in the content of the faith, which is animated by the ever-living, life-giving Spirit of God and activated as we say those words together. We become exactly part of what Paul described as the process in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you, I passed along to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes into the content of the faith. We are united, past, present, and God-willing future generations when we confess this faith. Secondly, when we confess the faith together, we are strengthening our grip on that which we have received. All of us know, uh, because we've heard the story before, we've watched the Olympics before, maybe some of you have run in relay races, but all of us know that the most perilous part of the relay race is the actual passing of the baton. Few batons are dropped when you're just running clear on the track. Problems happen at the moment of transfer of the baton. You've got two hands that become locked on. One is trying to loosen up. The other is trying to strengthen the grip. You can run out of the lane. You can drop the baton. You can trip over one another. You can continue united together too far along and not take up the running yourself. In confession, what you and I are doing as we actually do this is we are strengthening our hold. We are strengthening our ability to hold the baton, and we are holding that baton. As we range, in addition to strengthening our own hold, in this room right now, from 90s down to, I'll say, about three years old, because at about three, probably you're starting to be able to mouth the words of the confession, maybe a little bit earlier 
for some, from 90 down to three. What we're also doing is strengthening the transfer. It's the transfer of the faith that is happening as we say these creeds, confessions, even as we confess our sins together. Holding on to the baton and transferring it to another generation. In scripture, one of the phrases that is most frequently paired with the idea of confession is the idea, is the phrase, hold fast. Let me give you just one example of that from Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold your confession and hold it fast. How? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do you hold fast a confession? You meet together. You come together to hold fast a confession of the faith. The confessions are teaching us. We, we hold it fast, not just as a static kind of thing, but obviously holding it fast means to learn it, to seek to understand it, and to believe what is contained in those confessions. And so confessions for us are didactic. They teach us. Even a confession of sin is didactic. It teaches us corporately both how to think of one another, how to think of ourselves, and how to speak words of confession before our God. It etches things into our minds. It creates grooves in our heart. And it says to us, our confession, these are the most important things for you to know. Before anything else, these are the most important things. The Apostles' Creed, think of it for a moment, the Apostles' Creed, or think of those first couple of questions and answers from whether the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. When you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or when you ask and answer the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You have shaped and etched your life. They change the way you perceive the world, the way you perceive the people who are around you. They become for us the foundation, and this is to me no overstatement at all, they come, become for us the foundation of all other learning. I start there on those two places, and I can go anywhere because this is my Father's world, and I can go anywhere to celebrate those things. They give us a firm place to stand. All of us know that it is important for us personally to apply the Word of God, to read the Word of God, study the Word of God, whether you're in a family devotion, a personal devotion, a small group Bible study, or whether you're in Sunday school or listening to a sermon. Taking a particular passage of Scripture, learning it, seeking to understand it, and then apply it to our lives is critical. It is the living Word of God. But the creeds act a little bit differently. What they do is shape for us by witness of the church from generations past a way of saying these things are most important and most foundational. And in so doing, they actually are kind of a protection 
from the present, from the whims of any particular pastor, even from the whims of myself as I look at Scripture, because they say to us, start here and end right here. Stay right here with these truths. You'll spend a lifetime trying to understand these great truths that are summarized here for us. Strengthen your grip on it. Hold it fast. Third, corporate confession is the drawing of a line of demarcation. Corporate confession is a line that is drawn in the sand. Words that are said together are an act that is simultaneously one of allegiance and defiance. You are doing both at the same time, for example, when you confess the faith together. To the triune God, we are saying, by your grace, by your calling, through your word, by your spirit, I, we, belong to you. We are yours and you are ours. And we're saying it along with the cherubim, the angels, the seraphim. We're saying it along with our brothers and sisters, young and old. This is our God. And at the exact same time, we are saying to the world, to the world that is skeptical of Jesus Christ, that is, that is skeptical of the idea that there is one way to God revealed in Jesus Christ, that is skeptical of the whole idea that you could make something that is universally, timelessly true on a metaphysical level, that's a crazy idea to the world. And we're saying to the world, I defy you. And we're saying to Satan and his hosts, we defy you. We make our stand with Christ and in Christ. Thus, when we confess, it's something we do all the time, right? So we're familiar with it because we do it week after week. We, we have to resist taking it too casually. We have to resist the idea that this is just some kind of meaningless little dress rehearsal that we're doing here. If someone says to us, listen, don't you have the Apostles' Creed down by now? Why do you have to keep saying it again and again and again? What we are doing is an act at the same time of pledging our allegiance to God and our defiance to all other pretenders to the throne. It is our battle cry. When we gather together, it is our battle cry that we are doing together, saying it in the midst of the world. We come together to say... By God's grace, I am this and I am not that. We confess the faith that is once given, and in confessing the faith, faith that is once given, we are contending for it. Admittedly, this is a fairly easy context in which to confess the faith. But this is the place where the strength is built to be able to confess the faith in other contexts as well, and ones where it is much more brutal. I want you to hear some verses again with that in mind, with the idea of allegiance and defiance now in mind. 
Because now what you're going to hear, as you listen to these verses with that in mind, is that the idea of confession is set firmly within a fight, within a battle, a cosmic battle that exists. So when we, when we hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You hear the allegiance? Our God. Our God. And the defiance is to all of the other cultures around who had a pantheon of gods, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an act of defiance to everyone else who is around them, who is in the world. Romans 10, 9 and 10, you get the significance of this when you hear it in the context of allegiance and defiance. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Perhaps without that verse, we might think, well, all that matters is what I believe in my heart. Right? God cares about the heart. Doesn't care about what comes out of my mouth. But in fact, what it says is, you must publicly declare your allegiance to this God. You must confess publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord, because that is the way that you are saved. Not to deny the heart, obviously. Or again, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't mean to repeat these, but I really think once you get that sense, you hear them in a different way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, the name that is above any other pretender to the throne, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to this passage from 1 Timothy. And I, I, I know there's a lot today, but it's just to help us see how pervasive this idea is of the confession. Excuse me, from, uh, why don't I have that marked there? From 1 Timothy, Paul to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. If you're going to fight the good fight of faith, you go back to the good confession that you made. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained. Timothy made the good confession. That's how you fight the fight. And Paul hearkens back to Jesus, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate as part of fighting the fight. Now, listen to these passages from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's a line of demarcation. 
What do you confess? What do you agree together about Jesus? And if you say it correctly, you are with him, with the Christ. And if you say it incorrectly, you are with the Antichrist. There is no blurriness between those two things. You either acknowledge Christ as Lord, come in the flesh, or you are with the Antichrist. It is a line drawn. And I'll give you just one more passage, Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, and by the way, the word acknowledge there is homologia, so whoever confesses is the better translation. So everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Well, that puts it all on the line. You will confess me before men, and I will confess you. If you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you. And that is why when you join the church, you make public confession of your faith. Before the session, you make public profession, and then when you stand up here and you repeat those vows and you assent to those, you are making a public declaration that I am for Christ, that I am in Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Fourth and finally, confession is supremely an act of praise. Confession is ultimately doxological. It is about the glory of God. Confession is indeed the review of the great truths of the faith. But ha what happens when you voice together the content of the faith? Have you ever tried to say the Apostles' Creed by yourself quietly, maybe in a time of devotion? Maybe not. Maybe you've never even tried to do that. But imagine for a moment what that would be like. It'd be quiet. You would say it to yourself and think, well, okay, that, that, that was good. That felt perhaps a little bit odd to be saying that in this context. But what happens when you gather together with 100 or 120 other people and you say the Apostles' Creed together? What happens is amplification. It gets louder. And what happens as it gets louder is our in addition to our voices being lifted up to the throne room of God, our hearts get lifted up to the throne room of God. So I don't know if you were paying attention to the offertory uh, or not when, when Justin played it for us, but as he played it today, it began very softly. And perhaps at that point, you know, you're getting your check ready, you're you know, getting ready for the plate being passed around, but as the offertory continued, it increased in its volume, and I guarantee you that you started to pay more attention to it as it increased in volume. And so what happens is as we say the faith together, we are, our hearts are lifted up to God. God isn't deaf, okay? We're not talking about God being dependent upon this. We're talking about our hearts being lifted up to Him in praise and worship and His delight in his people with one voice praising his name. When Tommy and I uh, set up this sermon series and, and the various structures of it and looked at the worship one, originally when we set it up, I had uh, the topic from last week. I had music and hymnody, and he had this topic, uh, and they were going to be reversed Sundays. And then as we were looking at it, I said, no, 
I, I really wanted to do music. In fact, I was talking to him for about 40 minutes last week prior to the sermon, after which he said, you know, you did give me this topic. You had it initially, but you gave it to me. And, uh, and, and, and he said, all right, so you can take this topic, but the one thing you can't do is you can't stand up there and just say again how much you love confessions and to confess because apparently I say that a lot, enough so that Tommy's sick of hearing me say that. So I have preached all the way up to this point, and I have not said that. And now I say to you, brothers and sisters, I love confessing with you. I love saying together before a holy and gracious God that we are sinners. And I love joining our voices together in declaring to one another, to our God, to the world, whether they listen or not, what we believe about God. Because I trust this happens with you, but it takes my heart and it lifts it up in praise. And that's where Philippians 2 ends up. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not so that people have their doctrine straight, but to the glory of God the Father. That's where confession ends up. You start doing it for whatever reason, and Paul starts into confession because he wants to see unity in the church. But confession always ends in doxology. It always takes us up through praise as our hearts and voices are lifted up together. We are the confessing church for and in unity, for strengthening and learning, for allegiance and defiance, and for the glory of our King.